The Watch is the latest and the greatest in pop culture from best friends Chris Ryan and Andy Greenwald. Join them as they discuss TV, movies, music, and much more. Check out The Watch on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Sonic. Life is all about innovating, creating new ways to enjoy things. We wouldn't have movies like The Matrix or Star Wars without it. We wouldn't have the new groovy fries from Sonic either. You've never seen a fry like this. It's hot, crispy, and designed to hold more sauce in every groove, which is perfect because there's also a new groovy sauce, creamy with a kick, and made just for new groovy fries at Sonic. Get the new groovy fries and groovy sauce today. Live free. Eat Sonic. This episode is brought to you by Sonic. Life is all about innovating, creating new ways to enjoy things. We wouldn't have movies like The Matrix or Star Wars without it. We wouldn't have the new groovy fries from Sonic either. You've never seen a fry like this. It's hot, crispy, and designed to hold more sauce in every groove, which is perfect because there's also a new groovy sauce, creamy with a kick, and made just for new groovy fries at Sonic. Get the new groovy fries and groovy sauce today. Live free. Eat Sonic. I'm Sean Fennessy. I'm Amanda Dobbins. And this is The Big Picture, a conversation show about the best movies we've seen this year so far. Later in the show, I'll be chatting with Amir Questlove-Thompson, the drummer for The Roots, DJ extraordinaire, author, podcast host, and now film director. His new documentary, Summer of Soul, or When the Revolution Could Not Be Televised, is out now on Hulu and in theaters. I hope you'll stick around for that conversation. But first, let's talk uh, 2021 movies. Let's start with Summer of Soul. Amanda, we saw it at Sundance in January, and we both kind of flipped for it. Mm -hmm. And it's exciting that it's coming out into the world. I think we're going to talk about it a little bit more as we get down to our lists. We sure are. Have you had a chance to revisit this movie since you saw it in January? And do you feel like it's going to become something that you do return to because it's as much basically an album as it is a movie? Yeah, I haven't seen it again. And that's kind of been purposeful because it is a movie that's being released in theaters in addition to... Uh, being released, I believe, on Hulu. And you and I have talked a lot about like the sound experience of being in a movie theater and especially the music experience. And this is a documentary about the 1969 Harlem Cultural Festival. And it involves a lot of previously unseen footage. So there is like a concert film element to this. And I think the movie is very special for a number of ways, including like the footage is amazing, but also the way that it puts the footage in context and teaches you a lot about the festival itself and kind of what was going on around it and offers a critique or, you know, analysis, even as it is just giving you this concert experience is really special, but it would be fun to experience the concert part of it, like in a room with very loud sound. And so I'm, I'm hoping to be able to do that at some point this summer. I would love to do the same. That would be a great way to experience it. One of the things I was thinking about with that movie in particular is, you know, there are a lot of great concert films or concert footage of incredible artists, even some incredible artists in that film. But there's not a lot of great late 60s, early 70s concert film footage or standalone films dedicated to Stevie Wonder. And this movie basically opens with Stevie getting on stage and just being Stevie, doing a drum solo, playing the keyboards, doing all the things that make him amazing. So just for Stevie alone, and he's one of literally only 25 artists who appear in the movie, it's totally worth your time. I'm going to try to check it out on the big screen as well. Let's talk about movies this year. There is this sensation that this could turn out to be one of the best movie years ever because we've had tons of releases pushed into this calendar year. However, not a lot of those have come out yet. Um, We're six months through the year. I wouldn't say it's been a particularly strong movie year thus far. 
How are you feeling about what 2021 is shaping up to be? I feel like you're really putting all of your money on October 22nd, 2021. I, I, I am. It's like if that I doesn't come through four for four, <laughs> we're just absolutely screwed. What's coming on October 22nd? Uh, let's see if I can do it without Googling. Okay. Dune, French Dispatch, your Edgar Wright movie, Last Night in Soho. Is that what That's it's right. called? And I don't remember the fourth one because I think it's a horror movie. The fourth film, of course, is Jackass 4. Oh, sure. Which is a horror movie of sorts. Yeah, of course. But also extremely culturally significant. Yes. So I am putting a lot of eggs in the October 22nd basket. But, you know, I think it could be a good fall. It could be a good winter. Thus far, though, it's been a little uneven, I would say. Unfocused, shall we say. (laughs) Scattered. Highs and lows and uh, relative uh, enjoyment. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't know what to say. It's uh, movies are are back, sort of, but they're not totally back. And we're doing the best that we can to make a podcast. And the way that movies are back, they're different than they were before they left. And some things that are not movies are movies, and some things that are movies aren't movies anymore. And we watch them all on the same screen. So it's we're it's better than this time last year for sure. Mm-hmm. And even the end of last year, I would say, right? Like there are a few more movies to talk about, some of them even like big blockbusters. But it's interesting when you try to make a best of list and try to apply some critical or you know qualitative thought to the list of movies released this year. It's really just been blockbusters that they wanted to show you on a big screen and or stuff that was forgotten last year during the the pandemic. I think most of the blockbusters have been a little below average, if I'm being honest. Yeah. You know, I think F9 was a little below average for the Fast series. Godzilla versus Kong, it was nice to have a movie like that at that time in history, but that will not go down as one of the five best Godzilla or Kong movies. Um, I don't know. I mean, Mortal Kombat was just not very good. You know, I wanted it to be good, but it just wasn't. And I'm sorry to say that Conjuring 3, that was not the best Conjuring movie. It's been a little bit slow to grow, I think, this year. There have been some really strong independent films. I think we we ultimately, I didn't really have a hard time putting together a top five. There were probably seven or eight movies I really authentically like so far this year. But you may have noticed on this podcast, we're doing this thing where we're like, The Queen's Gambit, that's a movie. It was very nice to hear Quentin Tarantino tell us he agreed with that, that The Queen's Gambit is in fact a movie. You know, Can't Get You Out of My Head, Adam Curtis's eight-hour megalith documentary that's a movie bo burnham's inside that's a movie we're just we're claiming everything now you know loki maybe loki was a was it a movie it's not a movie you've been trying to make loki a podcast for like (laughs) however many months it's been out just go with that i I don't know what to tell you i don't even like it that much but i'm not watching it so what else anything else that we have been trying to claim here there was a 30 minute short film by pedro almodovar that is quite Mm -hmm. obviously a film but it is a short and normally we probably wouldn't spend much time on that on this show. I think I mentioned it a couple of times because I'm like, man, this is pretty much as good as anything that's come out this year, even if it doesn't right. totally make my list because it doesn't have the standard 90 minutes to two hours format. I'm claiming Starstruck, the HBO Max series that was essentially two hours long in total and like a perfect rom-com and sort of a 2021 response to Notting Hill. But I just like if you had released it just as it was in a movie theater, totally would have worked. So you mentioned you did some box office research. What research did you do? Um, I just Googled box shit, but I closed the tab. <laughs> I'm just looking at my tabs. I Googled box office mojo uh, 2021. Wow. And this is was, this is why people tune in is the, yeah. the, the real work that we put into this podcast. Well, you got to know the stats. And every time we talk about box office mojo and the redesign of box office mojo, oh. I do hear from people who are similarly upset. That just really, really upended my whole 
research process. Anyway, it's criminal it's, what they did to that site. Yeah, criminal. it's all the movies you would expect. A Quiet Place Part Two, Godzilla vs Kong, F Nine, Cruella. Cruella made a lot of money at the box office, it even did. though people also apparently watched it at home. Congratulations, to children. The Conjuring, The Devil Made Me Do It, Ryan the Last Dragon, Demon Slayer, Mugen Train. Yeah, you checked that out last night. What'd you think? I did. <laughs> Tom and Jerry, Mortal Kombat, and Peter Rabbit 2. And and Peter Rabbit 2, the 10th entry, is $30 million uh, domestic. So I, I don't know. People are sort of not going to the movies, but also they're not going to the movies. It's been very tough going. It's been mm-hmm. very tough going. It's not surprising to me I don't have any animated movies on my list, but it's not surprising to me that some of the sort of most consistent movies this year have been animated movies because those are the kinds of movies that you could really have worked hard on during the pandemic. I think The Mitchells versus The Machines, Luca, the new Pixar film, which we have not mentioned on the show thus far, and Raya and the Last Dragon are all like kind of three-star movies to me, maybe even a little bit better than that. And they're really fun and they're obviously wonderful for parents to have to show their children at home or in the movie theater if they want to. Raya has been playing in movie theaters for months now. It's actually had a long tail. And so that's not shocking, I guess, given the circumstances of the year. One of the reasons why we haven't had a ton of big releases is because there was not a ton of production happening last year. Quiet Place Mm -hmm. Part 2 was ready to come out in March of 2020 until it was pushed to 2021. What other animated films did you want to cape for here? I'm not going to make fun of animated films. I want to shout out kids who just don't seem to be snobs about movie versus TV. You know, if it's a good movie, they'll just keep watching it. They don't need to have like new things all of the time. They'll just watch Raya and the Dragon however many times they need to. And I think that's great. I We could all be a little bit more like children, I guess, except for the fact that we'd have to like animated films, which is not really my bag. Fortunately, I have never given up on my childhood. I hold it close to the chest and I hold it warmly. What about the fact that this year feels a little bit disconnected because of the Oscars and the Oscars happening so late and movies being able to qualify up to February. That also, I think, has given me kind of a tilted sense of what is the movie year because there's some movies on our lists that feel like 2020 movies but actually are not. Right. And and we're eligible for Oscars and we're even nominated for Oscars. And I was very inconsistent in applying those rules to my own personal list because I... I have included some movies that were nominated for Oscars, but they were technically released in 2021. And I also saw them in 2021. So I did kind of like my personal windowing. I don't know. Mm. It's how we all live now, right? It's just with our own list. But, you know, I was reading through the box office and I think Minari ultimately did make like $5 million at the box office this year. And I never thought to include it because you and I saw Minari in Sundance 2020 And that feels like so long ago that even though it was also released technically to the public in February of this year and is a 2021 movie. So now I feel a little bad, but I don't really know what to say. So I'm reading the Wikipedia page of the film and it says it began a one week virtual release on December 11th, 2020. So I think you're I think you're clear of this concern. I think it's officially a 20 because I didn't list it either. And it, it probably would have been at the top of my list. Yeah. Um, That's why I was like, what am I doing? This is yeah. a terrible list. I realized this like 15 minutes before we started recording. It's like, Definitely well, one of the best movies of 2020. So you can yeah. imagine it should have been on 2021. Okay, that's a relief because I was a little bit concerned that maybe I screwed up as well. Okay, should we dig into our lists? Yeah. Let's dig in. What's We have a no- lot of overlap. How do you want to do it? 
Well, your number five is my number four. Let's just dig in. We just talked about this movie on on a podcast last week, but we can just shout it out again because people have now had a chance to see it over the weekend. No sudden move. Steven Soderbergh made just a complete, delightful heist film and put it on HBO Max for you to enjoy. It is like we're living in the future in a good way in that sense, and I accept it um, and really enjoyed this film. Me too. It's a little bit of a... um... It's a little bit of like there was I was holding a slot for this film sure, <laughs> until yeah. until I got a chance to see it because I knew. And so maybe there's a little bit of bias happening there. But I think when you look at the landscape of other movies that have been released this year, it's just it's just a cut above virtually everything else that's that's come along. And even if it's, I don't know, maybe second tier Soderbergh, where do you think it falls in the grand scheme of Soderbergh, like 15, 16, something like that? Well, that makes me do math because what there are 33 total. I would say it's like 10. It, 15 10 range it's Mm -hmm. pretty good you know there's there's no part of it that's like oh well you didn't have time and you just kind of like fast forwarded through that I I mean I guess there are a couple casting issues that um seem like quirks of the film but I I embrace them as a part of the movie you know another thing that I was thinking about with this movie so often now when we get movies and particularly movies for streaming even you and I are kind of like this this could have just been a TV series, and and why didn't you just take a TV series, and and take the extra time and space since you have it? And I think that this is a story that could be a series, but I like the movie version better, and the pace and the choices and the kind of like not quite confusion, but the slight mystery at the center of it and how it's going, and the deliberate amount of time that he spends on each character in order to kind of present you this like world of action. I I think it works better than sort of like a a plot a yet another like true crime heist plotting miniseries. I agree with you. I think that actually the mystery at the center of the the story is not strong enough to hold me yeah. on the line for 8 weeks, but it is strong enough to hold me on the line for 2 hours. And so I was right. kind of relieved. It's like, it, I don't think you and I still 100% understand how the heist worked. That like we're, <laughs> I'm like probably at 80%, right? That's okay. That's fine. But it's because it moves so quickly and it lands all the big spots. So you're just like, oh, yeah, 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 sure, sure. I get it. That's they, they pulled it off. But if you extended it, then you would have to explain everything and everything would have to make sense. I think and the, I agree. It wouldn't hold up. The good news about it is while the the heist itself is a bit disorienting. There is a scene with a very special guest star at the end of the movie who essentially explains the themes and all of the surrounding Mm -hmm. stakes of the Mm -hmm. movie in a beautiful Ned Beatty-esque five-minute monologue. And so if you were at all confused, that character truly sets the table and serves you the meal as the movie comes to a conclusion. So I appreciated that. That's one more reason why it's a great movie. It has a big set piece kind of monologue ending at the end that pays off if you yeah. manage to stick around for two full hours. Um, let's just... No, let's, and excuse me, not two full hours. It was like a clean hour 42, I want to say. I th- it says 115 minutes is the runtime. Okay, well, that's still under two hours. Under two hours. Um, no sudden move. It's great. Check it out. It's on HBO Max. Uh, what's your number four? No, sh- actually, I'll no, do my have, number yeah. five. I'll do my number five. My number five is St. Maud. I saw St. Maud in February of 2020. I had not seen it since until last night. St. Maud is a lean, genuinely upsetting A24 Catholic horror movie. It's about a young woman who works for a private agency who cares after um, 
people who are in the final stages of their life. It's written and directed by a woman named Rose Glass. It stars Morfitt Clark and Jennifer Ely. And it's your standard operating A24 freak out horror movie in some in some respects. In other respects, it's a you know psychological terror that has a lot more in common with movies like Rosemary's Baby, um, Raised Roman Catholic as I was. Uh, I think notions of guilt and terror and trauma and confusion and fealty and fear and disconnection from God are right on the surface of this movie. Um, it's only 84 minutes. It's not an Amanda movie, yeah. but for anybody out there who is looking for something to terrorize your Friday night or your Sunday morning, this is, this is a pretty, pretty good one. It's pretty exciting to see someone like Rose Glass come along in this space. Obviously, A24 has a reputation for launching filmmakers like this in many ways with movies like The Witch and movies like um, Hereditary. This is somewhat in the same vein, but it is definitively British and uh, brings with it all of the kind of mannered work that comes with the British lifestyle. Uh, Just a really, really, really well-mounted, well-made movie that has stuck with me. It's streaming on Hulu right now if you'd like to check it out. I'll never watch this, but I'm just really pleased that Jennifer Ely is still in the mix. She's truly amazing in this movie. Yeah. She plays, she plays a, a, a woman who uh, is in the final stages of a cancer diagnosis. Mm. And she's, it's understood that she was like a hedonistic dancer in her, in her life. And she's trying to recapture her hedonism like in the last days of her life. And I, you know, sometimes a performance, you, you're looking at someone acting and it looks hard. Yeah. You know, it's not that they're, you see their effort necessary. It's necessarily it's like you're just thinking about the character and what it must be like to try to channel someone in that stage of their life. This is as hard as it comes. It's like someone who's desperately trying to be vivacious, but is also completely stricken by this malady. Really, really great. She's she's killing it. Um, okay, so number four. I went outside the box here, though you and I uh, unilaterally decided that this is a film. So I'm going with Bo Burnham's Inside. Which is, I, I well, I guess No Sudden Move was also mostly shot during the pandemic, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I think that's right. But I think that this is this is my only film that even acknowledges the events of the last year. But crucially, like that never says pandemic, which I think uh, is part of what makes it work for me. I am not really thirsting for a lot of uh, pandemic content personally, but. Um, what this movie does in terms of taking the, the circumstances of the world, but also of this person and of how to make art and um, turns it into a meditation. And it was like, I, I think a very profound insight into the internet and how it's screwing up all of our brains and what we see, like, you know, as we're living, but also kind of the art that we're consuming and the way that our brains are mangled now and how that influences our mental health, but certainly also like movies and TV and everything that we create. Cause it all gets mushed together. I thought it was very smart and an achievement. So I'm claiming it for the movies. Thank you, Bo Burnham. I think you're right too. I'll tell you a quick story. I was, yeah. I was in the office a couple of weeks ago recording a rewatchables podcast and I got there a little early and I sat down and the producer of that show, co-host of the Ringer Fantasy Football Show, Craig Horlbeck was there. And Craig in a very whispery voice was like, hey, Sean, did you see Bo Burnham's Inside? I know you made a podcast about it. I didn't listen to it. But did you see it? 
And I said, yeah, I saw it. And we started talking about it. And, you know, Craig is a little bit younger than we are. And Craig was, you know, basically like, this is my guy. This is a guy who I have been following since I was a teenager. Bo famously started making YouTube videos, writing parody songs, doing a kind of modernized internet version of stand-up when he was like 15, 16 years old. And so Craig was really, really invested in him and in what he's doing and in his journey as like a creative person, as a filmmaker, et cetera. I think you and I might have mentioned this when we did an episode about it, but we're really not. You know, you were not a huge fan of eighth grade. I liked eighth grade, but everything before that, I just didn't yeah. have any relationship to. And so it's cool that I think he not only is evolving as an artist, but I feel like is actually bringing more people kind of into his project. I thought this was a really savvy way to do that. I think you make a good point by identifying that he doesn't, he doesn't timestamp this because he doesn't talk about the pandemic. He's talking like about a different kind of isolation, a different kind of alienation or anxiety or whatever you want to call it while also writing, I think really funny songs and Mm -hmm. creating a level of performance that feels like a little worryingly real, but also a part of the character that he has been building as a stand-up comedian that in the past didn't necessarily click for me. But I think maybe as we all started to have a very similar experience, 2020 resonated a little bit more deeply. I think just being a little older than Bo when he was doing his shtick in 2015 or 2013, I was like, I, I feel separated from this. And this actually made me feel a little bit closer to what he was doing. So it made it work. I mean, we, we rarely talk about stand-up comedy on this show. Yeah. And um, I mean, I think- I, again, I, I'm not totally sure that I consider this stand-up comedy, even mm-hmm. though that is his history and what he's doing. And like a lot of the skills that he developed in stand-up comedy are applied here. And I'm sure there are going to be a million stand-up comedians who like try to do something like this and fall flat on their face, which is, I guess, a different form of comedy. But I, I, the other thing about, I think some of it is just like age and time and it's as he becomes slightly more reflective and, you know, has it like amassed more of an experience and, and I, you could feel his own history and career in this as well. Um, and that the older you get is possibly the more easier to relate to. Do you think this is the last time we'll have a quote unquote stand up special on a list like this? Or do you think we're just at the beginning of comedians taking the bow model and expanding? In the sense that we are constantly blurring the lines of what is a movie, is a TV show, is a stand up comedy, is performance art, is Instagram, is celebrity, is whatever. I, I don't think it's the last. Do I think that every stand up comedian has the ability to make something like this? I emphatically do not. And I am begging them not to try. Like, I am just absolutely begging you. If you were moved by this, same. And we have that in common. And I think that's really special. But unless you have this particular skill set, which includes, you know, writing songs and filming and editing and the understanding of craft, as well as his, you know, particular analytical brain, like find your own inside. But please, please, please don't just try to remake this. It's a good point. I think actually what ultimately recommends this is not the quality of the songs or the sketch writing or even the emotional insight. I think it's how well made this is, how well edited and shot and conceived it is. And that's, you know, that flatters our sensibilities about talking about movies, but it is a really impressive act. Now he had a whole year by himself to probably not do too much else, but I also like the idea of being able to see the seams of it you know, being able to see how he did it. That's obviously a very self-conscious choice to show us 
how he can't quite get the lighting rig to work properly or the way that he's kind of setting up the frame with his camera and kind of moving things around. But that idea that we have to do everything by ourselves during this time, I think also resonates throughout the the piece. So it's, and, it, and also that everything is artifice and that the way you put these images together and the, the technical craft of it is like, is, is our performance and is something other than yourself. That's certainly like part of the internet and a major tension, I think of, of this special, but um, that he's actually using the format in order to, ex- you know, like the actual technical skills are also part of the analysis and the argument itself is, I think, pretty special. I completely agree. What would your um, one woman oh my God. film be called? <laughs> Leave me alone. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, it's just like a blank camera. I'm just like, I'm not there. <laughs> yeah. I had a feeling that you were going to go in that direction. I just, I mean, I, it's like, I didn't plan that. That was just like my instinctive answer. Um, you know, the Apple commercial, um, that's like for privacy that with the Delta five song, minor yeah, business, sure, which has been playing a lot in our home. Cause we've just been watching a lot of sports and my husband is so mad that this amazing Delta five song is like being used to sell Apple products. And I'm just like, this is the best commercial that's ever been made. And I would like these powers and I want like this to be happening at all times with minor business playing. Like just as I like go through my life. Uh, all of our memories and joy is grist for the advertising mill. I think we have to accept that at this stage of our life. So your number three and my number two are Summer of Soul, which Mm -hmm. we talked about, which I'll talk about with Questlove on the episode. I hope a bunch of people have watched this over the weekend. What a, what a solid movie weekend this was that people at home just get to watch Summer of Soul and no sudden move. Yeah. uh, Sitting in their home. That's pretty dope. Yes. It's happy 4th of July, America, I guess. Once again, we we did something. Um, no, it's nice. <laughs> what does that mean? I don't know. We established I'm, a nation of United I, States. I guess so. It's like, I, let's just, we got two good movies from two great directors <laughs> and we got a day off, you know? Do you not and want to talk about our founding fathers here I and really some of their super, achievements and their sins? Super do not. I wanted to, again, I wanted to, take a vacation and I want everyone to mind um, their own business or leave me out of it. Um, Yeah. Great holiday weekend. I mean, it is also interesting because historically this, you know, independence day, the movie would be released on like the Wednesday before this weekend and then would just like be gangbusters. I I assumed that it was released on 4th of July weekend. If it wasn't, that was really stupid. I believe it was, you know, let's talk about that movie very quickly. Thank you for bringing it up. It's it's, it's, uh, on the new episode of the rewatchables this week with Bill and Chris and Shay. And mm-hmm. I think you and I have talked lovingly about it in the past, primarily because we both just had gobsmacked, you know, preteen experiences seeing the movie in theaters with people just like cheering and screaming at the top of their lungs. You know, those videos, those fan reaction videos of scenes from Avengers Endgame where, you know, Cap no, catches the ham. You, you seriously don't know what I'm talking about? No, people film themselves watching this and then like cheering. Do you really not know what this is? These are like very, very popular YouTube videos of just it's it's somebody brings, you know, their phone into a movie theater. A scene happens in a movie. They film the scene while sitting in the movie theater and it captures the like screaming that happened at like people screaming at the top of their lungs when a Marvel character does something. You, you don't know about this? 
I mean, I maybe I've like seen it on Twitter, you know, in the way of just like the passive scrolling and then okay. someone's like, there's a hammer and everyone's cheering, but no, I'm not subscribed to the channel. <laughs> like, what are what you fucking talking about? I'm a grown up. I have a life. I go see these movies. I listen to crazy people I love rant and rave about them <laughs> and all the Easter eggs. You know, I give as much of Hold my on. brain and time Hold to on. it as I can, but no, I'm not watching random YouTube reaction videos. <laughs> Jesus Christ! <laughs> I I, uh, I I did this to myself. I don't know why I even asked you this. Nevertheless, I was just going to make a comparison because this is a strand of 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 culture, I guess, of of reactive culture where people do this now when they go to these movies and when a big moment happens, they film them. I have and- seen a very cute one of a father showing his son. Um, the big I like Luke, I am your father reveal in Star Wars. And yeah. it's like a four-year-old being like, oh, that, you know, that, that's in the same genre. Okay. I feel like the originating version of that for our generation is Will Smith punching the alien saying, welcome to Earth. Yeah. And then the Bill Pullman speech. Those two things when people were either like cry clapping because they were like, Bill Pullman is the president. You know, Bill Clinton can die in a fire because it yeah. is now Bill Pullman's time. And the welcome to earth thing where I, I I swear to God, someone in my theater, I think I was 13 years old when this movie came out. was like, you're goddamn motherfucking right. When Will Smith, we were like, we were all waiting for Will Smith to become a movie star. And in one second he did it. He did. Yeah. In that scene. That was so special. What a fun movie. Love that movie. I also, in terms of reactions, when the the ship opens up and just absolutely nukes the White House. Yeah, you enjoyed I was that. Just like, well, there's no going back. That's because like, that's because you're an emotional terrorist, and that's what that's what you appreciated is those aliens well, coming down. Like, and that destroying. is when you talk about disasters. I, we did this on our Apocalypse podcast, which is still like the I think the funniest podcast we've ever done. <laughs> we were really in a weird place, but. Someone says, like, the world is ending. And, like, I see that giant laser down over the White House. Like, that's it. That's just one shot, you know? It's amazing. We we learned last year that when something like that is going to happen, it's going to be much more mundane. It's just right. going to be, you know, yeah. a, a bat bit a pig. And then all of a sudden, the world shuts it's, down it's for a year. It's going to be contagion. Anyway, I brought up Independence Day because that all of us going to the theater and, like, cheering while Will Smith punches in <laughs> is how we used to celebrate this holiday at the movies. And it is like quite different, if not better, that now in our homes we have movies by Steven Soderbergh and by Questlove that are like wonderful pieces of art and definitely on our like top five movies of the year and not in like a cute Independence Day way, though I probably in 1996 would have put Independence Day on my top five of the year. I, you know, I, again, I was 12. So, but it's... It's different. Movies are different. We'll probably find out when we get around to 1996 uh, movie draft. That'll have to happen at some point because you and I were both coming into a, a higher level of consciousness yeah. about movies around that time. Um, okay, let's go to my number three. My number three is a movie called Test Pattern. I saw this movie for the first time last night. I had been told by a handful of people that it was really great. I would say I was even more knocked out by it than I expected. This is a movie that was originally released in film festivals in 2019. It was not released uh, to the public until February of this year. It's a first film from uh, a woman named Shatara Michelle Ford. And I was I was gobsmacked. I was blown away by this movie, which starts out as a kind of like meet cute dramedy between a man and a woman in Texas and slowly evolves into like a true romance. 
and then devolves into a kind of, you know, a, really frankly, a sexual assault horror movie, and then turns into kind of like almost like a chase movie, like an anxiety-inducing movie about a, the pursuit of um, a rape kit to kind of get to the bottom of what had happened. Now, all of this sounds very upsetting, and at times it is a very upsetting and difficult movie to watch, but it's also very gracefully made, very confidently made. It's uh, Ford is has such a clear vision of how she wants to tell the story. There are a few filmmaking flourishes, the way that the film is edited, the way conversations are interrupted, the way flashback is used. The Sometimes you see a movie and you're like, this person just has it. A filmmaker just has it. They have a total sense of what they want to do when they set out to make a movie. Again, like a lot of the other movies on our list, this is a very lean movie. It's only 82 minutes. You can rent it on VOD right now on Apple or on Amazon or anywhere else. It was released by Kino Lorber. Um, truly exceptional performances by the two leads, Brittany S. Hall and Will Brill. Two people whose faces you might have seen before in movies, but that are by no means stars. But I would guess if if producers are seeing a movie like this, that actors like this will get a lot more opportunities to do a lot more great work. I got to say, I was relieved, excited, happy to have a movie like this. Um, it is a tough watch. It is a complex story. You know, it's not just about sex and relationships and sexual assault and race and power and um, the idea of crusaderdom, which is, you know, I think a really complicated and relevant idea in 2021, but really, really sensitive and careful and even at times like funny and charming and and sensual kind of a movie very rare to see all of those things kind of in one big pot so i would highly recommend test pattern to people who are looking for something a little bit more challenging than godzilla versus kong yeah wow that was quite a recommendation give it a shot i mean i I, I really liked it okay what's your number two which is is my number one judas and the black messiah this is a very good film that you and I both really enjoyed. Yeah, it feels odd to think of it as t- 2021, even more than Minari. Like, I think I, this this movie feels like it came out like, I don't know, 20 years ago. <laughs> it just, it's been a long year. I probably first saw it in, in December of 2020. I think, did you see it later than no, that? No, I, I do think that I saw it in this calendar year. And the, the tricky thing about it was the way that it was released. It just got an HBO... It got a simultaneous HBO Max and, and theater release, I believe, but then was taken off HBO Max pretty quickly. In addition to all the hand-wringing that we did about the HBO Max plan, it was a little bit revolutionary is too strong of a word, but it, it was an innovative idea to create a new kind of windowing to say that these movies are only available on this service for this amount of days. And then it's gone for a while. And I don't. we're not going to tell you when it's coming back. Could be three months, could be a year. It's a movie that I think I did watch it a second time as we prepared for the Oscars and felt its power even more so the second time around. I think very similar to a movie like Test Pattern, when you're watching the movie, you're like, oh, Shaka King, he's got it. He's mm-hmm. got the camera moves. He's got a sense of pace. He really knows how to get great performances out of his actors, scale. Um, there have been there were some kind of c- concerns and complaints about whether or not the movie was focused on the right characters or whether or not it was too much about William O'Neill. I I think we talked about it at the time of release. I, I didn't feel that way at all. I, I think it actually would have been more of a standard biopic if it had been purely Fred Hampton focused for two hours. I liked that it showed this contrast that created this kind of Shakespearean cat and mouse kind of heist thriller strategy to it. I, 
it felt much, frankly much more similar to a lot of movies that we got in the 90s that you and I both really like and I don't think that that trivialized the ideas in the movie either I, I I'm still trying to wrap my head around some of the reaction to it because when I saw it I I uh, there are not a lot of movies in the history of Hollywood backed by studios like Warner Brothers that are willing to support and 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 portray political ideas that are this left of center and so I've been turning that over in my head as to like, was it not far enough? Like what, what animated that reaction specifically? Not that that matters to the quality of the movie, but it has been in my head. Right. And listen, you and I are going to have one reaction and and people are, are more than allowed to have other reactions and not feel like certain characters or performances are rounded enough or, um, fully comes through to them. I, I think this was an interesting case of this was a movie that actually did spur discussion, which is cool. We don't mm. get that many of those. And as you said, like Shaka King clearly has it. And so much of the movie is working and confident that you then get to like talk about the ideas. Most movies don't make it that far, mm. but it's a combination of, of that level of conversation paired with the fact that it didn't seem like that many people saw it. And it was like, people didn't understand how to see it and it was hard to see. And so people were talking a bit, maybe around it or maybe around each other. It's like, you know, and I think you and I sometimes bemoan this sort of like hot take. Now there's 48 hours where everyone's just like all arguing about a movie all together. And I do still bemoan that because a lot of times I think it's like bad faith or just, you know, bad ideas. Like not, not everyone with a Twitter account is um, a, a high level critic, but it does at least focus you know, when we're all talking about the same thing, we're all talking about the same thing. And I think this one just kind of got a little bit, everyone got to it at a different time. Yeah. So I, I, I think one, I think you're completely right that it's a waste of time to focus on whatever straw man internet reaction I'm responding to. I think, but I think I've, I've disagreed with, with our boss, Bill. I've just, we've disagreed with Wesley about this movie, you know, like there, I've talked to a handful of people whose opinions I take seriously about the movie. And it didn't click for them. You know, it didn't work for them. And you're right that that actually is a good thing. It's a good thing for like the discourse of movies that something was good enough, worthy enough for that level of analysis. Because you're right. It does kind of feel like we don't necessarily, even you and I don't necessarily get to kind of pull apart movies. We can't, you can't really pull apart Godzilla versus Kong. It's no. a it's a helpless mosquito relative to something like Judas, which is, you know, a really serious and, and sincerely mounted movie. Um, you know, it's just, I, I don't know. We may not get to a point where it's like there's now a kind of consensus or millions of people have had a chance to see this movie because on the one hand, it's a historical drama. And so that alone, I think, mm-hmm. limits the number of people that are going to be interested in it. It's obviously it's a primarily a story about black characters, which also that means a bunch of people just won't watch it because they're racist or they're not interested in those stories or whatever. And it's been confusing the way that it's been released. And that is like the new normal now where it's like, where can I find that? When is it available to me? And so that also contributes to the, I don't know, the kind of like dispersal of big top monoculture conversation around quality films. And yeah. that is much more important as a conversation point than like did Avengers Endgame make $2 billion or not? That's who cares about that? That's like, you know, stock price ledger balancing stuff for corporations. For for me, I really loved Judas. I thought it was like a, a really significant film and I want I want to have more conversation about it. I want to better understand what people do or do not like about it. I hope people That's check it right. out. One thing that would have been smart, I thought, would have been just 
just put the movie back on HBO Max the day after totally. the Oscars, just it's for not a week. That hard. Just, just for a week. Create like a campaign that's like, hey, the Oscar, the performance of the year, Daniel Kaluuya and Judas and the Black Messiah. Watch it now and put a huge promo behind it. But they didn't do that. Because the property brothers didn't want that to happen. So <laughs> it's a real shame. Um, so that was your number two, and that was yes. my number one. So yes. we're up to your number one. What is it? Yes. So it's a film called Quo Vada Saida, which we talked about very briefly, I think, yeah. during the Oscars episode. And I don't know. I Sorry to put like a bummer town movie uh, as my number one. But this is a, a film directed by Jasmila Zubanich. And it's a film set during the Bosnian War and about a UN translator who is um, trying to manage her, her town and her family through... Uh, what becomes a historic massacre. And this is one that, you know, had a lot of buzz, but it's also an, you know, an international film. So I, it's like, I scooped it up on Hulu one day, like I was doing all of my Oscar research and I was like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah I got to see this. And so I suppose my expectations were somewhat, I don't want to say low, but I wasn't like, I'm sitting down for a masterpiece. And as such was completely um, blown away by it. It, um, like the tone and the pace and the quiet anxiety that just ratchets up throughout the movie while giving you a real sense of place of this main character of this town of what's at stake and what is going to be lost, you know, a historical event in the nineties that I was aware of, but didn't know as much about. And so I do think it also really creates a sense of, 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 of place and, explain some of the history, but not in a heavy handed way. And really just like devastating. I, that makes it sound also like homework. And I think that there is something really like propulsive and stressful, but something that keeps you watching to this movie as well, even as you know, it is ultimately an, an incredibly upsetting story, but I, I'm not selling it very well because, you know, it is like a extremely, sad movie, but it is also a very watchable movie, which sounds gross to say, but um, I really recommend you check it out. You're right. It has a kind of thriller element from that first sequence where she's kind of like negotiating with the military and trying to Mm -hmm. come to some sort of, you know, peaceful way forward. You get the sense that the stakes are really high, obviously as high as they can be in a war movie, but also that this character feels trapped, feels uh, unable to figure out how to go forward. And then that sets you up for, I think you're right. What is a very compelling movie sensitively made? Um, Jasna Djuricic, who's the star, I believe, is like amazing in this movie. Mm-hmm. She's so good. You're also right that it's reasonable to enter a best international feature nominee with a little bit of skepticism or trepidation. And, and you know, typically the the movies about like historical tragedies often have um just like a, a heavy-handed, dutiful quality to them, which I, I don't mean to be disrespectful, I, but you don't expect like the level of, of of filmmaking and forward movement almost. Yes, they are. Film. They are serious films that are more interested in sending their message than necessarily than in being great films. This is yeah. this is a movie that at times is doing both, which is really impressive. That's very good. That's also available on Hulu. Yes. That's the thing with the exception of Test Pattern, which I mentioned, which is on VOD. You could stream all these movies except for Judas and the Black Messiah, which I hope maybe will be on HBO Max again soon. Um, 
anything else that you want to shout? Any honorable mentions? Anything? That, I, I, one thing I noticed as I looked at your list is all five of your films are period pieces, including Bo Burnham Inside, which I think of as a true right. 2020 period piece. What do you think yeah. that means? You trying to go back to the past, Amanda? Well, I don't think that we had any movies made last year except for, you know, Bo Burnham Inside. I guess no I didn't move, but not a lot of movies like made in the present of 2020. Mm -hmm. And I definitely don't want any movies made in the present of 2020. I know we're going to get them. I know we're going to get the TV shows and the novels and the nonfiction and the podcasts and, you know, like I, I, no, no thanks. Like made it through. (laughs) I'm looking forward, but I guess that's part of it is that that's all that's left. Like all of the present day movies just didn't exist last year. I, I feel like you're discounting the Michael Bay produced film Songbird. You may have seen that, the thriller. No, no? and there was the Doug Liman movie with Anne Hathaway and and Chiwetel Ejiofor that, you know, that was a a Herod heist movie. Speaking of heist movies, I forgot that one. um, And then apparently Sharon Horgan and James McAvoy made like the British version of that movie, even though that movie was also set in London. So I guess I'll watch some of them, but. I would throw my life away for Sharon Horgan. Do you know that? That's really? that's like yeah, that's really my speed. I might throw my life away for James McAvoy. So wow, let's give them a call. Maybe that's yeah. a future podcast for us. <laughs> um, we're getting some good movies. I think July and August is actually going to be a little rough as far yeah. as new releases go. I think it's going to be a little bit of a grim summer. You know, we got an M Night Shyamalan movie, James Gunn superhero movie, Annette. I think will be really exciting. The last Carrick's movie that is premiering at Cannes, but then comes in August to Amazon. It's not really until September though when things start cooking anything that you're just like give it to me now like give me a summer break here i mean top gun yeah, i just why do we dope. have to do that i understand why is cuz they are just absolutely desperate for money and are waiting for everyone to get comfortable and things to kind of really get back in the flow they didn't want to be the first one and they didn't want to be the you know kind of medium pandemic record box office whatever but i i mean just planes flying really loudly and tom cruise that's just that's a dumb summer experience give it to me that would have been nice unfortunately we're not going to get it but we are going to get a lot more movies very very soon thank you amanda let's go now to my conversation with Questlove. this episode is brought to you by state farm you might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Delighted to be joined by Amir Questlove Thompson. Amir, what's up, man? How are you? Good. I'm good. Really good. Thanks for doing the show. Congratulations on your your directorial debut. How are you feeling? Are you excited? Uh, Yeah, I'm excited because this is kind of territory uh, not traveled before. You know, I thought all creativity was transferable, but um, in this very specific case, um, you know, I, I realized early in the game that you get like your first album or your first book or your first sneaker design, whatever. So um, I think the other times I just never uh, cherished it as much. So being as though this is probably the last first I'm going to do unless I run for 
president in, you know, 2040. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> is that on the table? No, it, the way my life is right now, like, you know, I, I, I joke with people that this was not on my bingo card five years ago, but um, I'm one of those people that's just open to the possibilities of, you know, wherever life leads me. So if, if I'm indeed called to do that, then I guess uh, this is where I'll make my announcement. So um, I'm going to, I'm going to file that away for 15 minutes from now when I'm still doing this podcast. First, right, right, right. right. <laughs> um, you know, it's funny. I, I, I do want to hear about how you found yourself coming to this place because I was listening to your podcast recently and you, you were having a conversation with Catherine Bigelow. I was like, oh, okay. Questlove does love films. He's curious about films, but obviously right. this isn't something that you've done specifically before. So why this story and, and how did it come about? All right. So, um, I'll basically say that, you know, I was, I was approached by um, the two producers of the film, uh, Robert Feivel and, and, and um, David Dinnerstein. They told me about this like mythical festival in Harlem and, you know, with all these acts on it, and, you know, as someone who, who grew up uh, around music and, you know, producing and playing music and teaching at NYU and, you know, a music snob, if you will, I I hadn't heard of this festival, and so I wasn't fully convinced of its existence. So I thought, you know, I joked that I always thought those guys were just trying to finesse me for some Tonight Show tickets. <laughs> uh, so, <laughs> but when when I saw when they came with the footage, then I was like, I was mind blown. I had to be involved, but you know, it it was a it was it was a shocker, if you will. I kind of came in a little arrogant, like. That didn't happen. I never heard of that thing. And then suddenly, like, oh, no, this really did happen. Now I got to do it. So um, I, I stepped up to the plate. So what do you do then? You learn of this existence, of this footage. You start figuring out what's going on at this festival. What's right. the first phone call you make as a filmmaker to say, yo, let's do it? <laughs> first phone call I made was to my manager. Get me out of this. So I was like... Are y'all crazy? Like what? <laughs> yeah, um, no, I, you know, it first, it first went to, you know, not that, uh, Hey, we'll do lunch. Have my people call your people. It was just like, yeah, we want to show you this footage. All right, well, you know, come through, shake their hands. All right, goodbye guys. And thought that that was it. Once I realized it was real. Um, <laughs> then I was like, Wait, y'all sure? Like, I just got my permit a second ago. Y'all sure you want me to drive this eighteen wheeler? Like, you you want a first time driver? Um, and then they told me, they basically told me that you know, well, we have been watching you, and you're the perfect person to tell the story. Um, you know, you've written books, you've curated things before. Um. So this was actually a chance for me to put my money where my mouth was because, you know, even in Creative Quest, where I encourage people to totally like just jump off the cliff uh, without any second thought, like, like just jump into creativity. Now it was like my chance to, to, to see if I was a hypocrite or not. Like it's good for all of you, but not for me. Um, and so the first thing I did was, um, well, we had 40 hours of footage already transferred, I guess, from the the few other times where they tried to sell the film in the last 50 years, uh, there was a transferred copy made. And um, I decided this is going to be my aquarium. 
I, I stole this aquarium idea from Prince. Um, I shared a story a long time ago about how I once got fired from a Prince uh, DJ gig and were replaced with um, Finding Nemo. Um, <laughs> Prince famously kept uh, a a sort of like a, a briefcase with nothing but Finding Nemo DVDs in case he loses one. There's another backup. Um, but he uses Finding Nemo as uh, an aquarium. So wherever he is, if there's a DVD, D player or in a restaurant, whatever, he makes them put it on so he can have, he says it does something to him. Like the, the visuals makes it like he has his own fish tank. Um, it's not cool getting fired by Prince, but I stole that idea. So for the next five months, I kept that, that constant uh, aquarium on. Like even if I'm sleeping, even if I'm, uh, you know, no matter what, I had to transfer it to my, my phone, traveling. Uh, my monitor's in the bathroom. Five hours, um, five hours, five months straight of just taking this in. And I was trying to curate it like I was curating, um, like I curate uh, any shows that I do. Um, the first thing I want to grab is the last thing. I think people tend to remember when they see shows how the show ended, um, which means that even if the show sucks, you can... You can use that last 10 minutes, your encore or whatever, to make them forget what they saw. Um, in the beginning, people tend to remember how things started. So um, when things would hit me, I wake up in the middle of the night, see something interesting, take a note of it. And then that's how we, you know, pretty much piece by piece uh, put it together. Because the hardest thing was to take 40 hours of footage and just figure it out, like, what's the right snippet to use uh, out of all that generous footage we had. What was more difficult to contextualize in the film? Because it feels like there's two stories to tell. There's, you know, what was Harlem and what was maybe black life in New York like in 1969? And then what was soul and R&B at the time? What was harder for you okay. to kind of put into context? So, see, there were four things that I was trying to get answered. Um, number one was like, how did they pull this off? Or the audacity of them to dream that pulled this off. So I was obsessed with that. And then, you know, I was also obsessed with, you know, the story of what happens in 1969 to black people pretty much mirrors all across the United States. So um, telling the story of Harlem is telling the story of every town USA um, with people having those same experiences. Um, but then there's also the story of why was this easily disposable or the dangers of being disposable? And then the fourth one was kind of where I think the, the, the advantage of getting a, a musician to direct a music documentary um, is there's some questions and places that I'll go that, you know, your average filmmaker wouldn't go. Um, you know, I, for instance, uh, I don't know if your average filmmaker would even know that was Sonny Chirac playing with Herbie Mann um, or, you know, who would know to ask Stevie Wonder, how did he get a limited uh, red and white uh, Horner clavinet series uh, a year before it came out? So, I mean, I asked a billion questions about just general things, because, you know, even as 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 a touring group, 
you know, I was curious about, you know, was there a rider back then? Did you guys know what the word charcuterie meant? Like, <laughs> was there a cheese spread backstage? Did Stevie Wonder have a, probably for me personally, um, I got off on reading the contracts. Like I had no clue that I could have had Sly on the Family Stone, like play my barbecue for like so cheap. They, they did that for $2,500. So, wow. <laughs> I was like, wait a minute, I don't even play my opening DJs that like, <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, um, but just like hotel arrangements and, you know, did, were there drivers back then? Did you guys have tour buses? Like just general things I wanted to know, even like the conga playing techniques of Mongo Santa Maria versus Ray Barreto, like Sheila E explaining that. So probably the four, the four things, um, answering those four questions, but editing a lot. Cause my first draft was like three hours and 25 minutes. So taking 90 minutes away was ugh, so painful. So, so I want to ask you about that specifically, which is you are renowned for your attention to detail in recording history. You know, the studios where stuff happens, you know, guys who mm -hmm. played on records over the years, there's a lot of opportunity to go down rabbit, rabbit holes, holes here. Yeah. And you didn't. I feel like the movie is is lean and flows <laughs> and it has rhythm. And I, was it hard for you to do that? Was it hard for you to cut out the little nuggets that you care about, but maybe a mainstream audience might not cling to? Yeah. So there's there's one there's one chip that uh, I don't have in me, and I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. I do not have a you can't tell me nothing chip. <laughs> like I don't have a my way or the highway chip. So. You know, I, I fully came in the gate um, to my producers and to my staff, to everyone, to, you know, your your opinion counts here. And that's not like a self-doubt thing, but just the way I, I tend to work, um, like focus groups are my friends. So I'm always gathering 15 people to individually play them something or show them something and figure out and just take a gauge on what they're attracted to, what they didn't like what they gravitated to. And in this particular case, um, you know, everyone came to me from the gate. Like, yes, we know you come from the land of, uh, you know, bloated, you know, my all time favorite hip hop album has 24 songs on it. Doesn't need it, but <laughs> you know, and I came from just that bloated more, more is more, um, environment. And so, our first draft, it was like, okay, this is this is good, but you know we can always push further. And so I was just like, okay, well, I I want this to to really hit people to the place where it's like I want them wanting more, but really want to impact and hit them. And they're like, okay, well, we're going to have to bring this down to two hours. So it was like a lot of probably the 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 most I had to take away was the comedy element. Um, cause I don't think there was a, a succinct way for me to really explain. Cause there's four types of humor there. There's like, uh, you know, mom's Mabley brand of humor, pick me Markham, like his one and only documented full performance of what he did. Pick me has performed at the Apollo more than any other artist in history. Like even his comedy dates back to like pre minstrelsy, you know? So his evolution to where he was then and still killing. Uh, that was a sight to see. And then like Willie Tyler and Lester. So, you know, this ventriloquist act um, and George Kirby, who was, you know, 
can imitate Johnny Mathis and Sam Cooke. So even with uh, a lot of editing, I would have had to spend at least 20 to 25 minutes on just comedy. And, you know, I, I just had to pull it out altogether because then, it, you know, it would have been lengthy. So um, it was hard to do. But, you know, to me, it was more effective just to serve the film than to serve, you know, a scratching itches that I had about writers and, you know, Stevie Wonder's uh, signature, like small things that, you know, only I'm curious about. One of the magic tricks of the movie is proving not just to yourself that it was real, but to the people who were there that it's real and getting attendees to participate. How did you find yeah. people who were there? And how, how did you have to have them prove to you that they were there? Okay, so here's the deal. We, we were trying to figure out how to do this. And, you know, I just said, well, let me throw the first stone. So put out a simple tweet. I was like, oh, Harlem residents, you know, if you had an uncle or an aunt, do you have anyone that ever told you a story about the time that they saw like Sly and the Family Stone and Nina Simone together on one stage and all these things? And, um, you know, I got, I got about, you know, 40 to 60 of them. A lot of them are like, oh, yeah, I, I heard about it, but I didn't go and da 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 da. So, what's really weird is uh, our attendee who booked in the film, Musa Jackson, um, he kind of gave us like a full disclosure, like, look, I was only five years old when it came out, but, you know, I have fond memories of this. And first I was a little slow to do it because I was like, well, like what insight or point of view does a five-year-old really have to take in? You know, but he told us, he said, this is the first memory I ever had in my life. So, you know, for him, it meant much more because he, he was just to the place where as a 57-year-old, he didn't know if he even had that memory, like, did I dream this? I think this happened. I'm not sure. But um, so we just collectively decided to, okay, well, we're going to end interview you first without context. Just tell us everything you know about it. And without just me asking him, like, what are your memories of the harm? And then he just started, he just one by one just started naming all these very specific things that unless he works for, you know, AP, <laughs> um, there's no way he would have known and had access to a very specific New York Times file. Um, there's no way that he would have known these things. And so we weren't even expecting it, but you know, it just so happens that we had some of the transferred film over. And because he mentioned uh the fifth dimension, we just happened to have that footage. It came to us like not not even an hour beforehand. And so we're kind of watching it together, but we were like, okay, well, let's tape him watching and see if anything else comes from this and man the floodgates just open because it was like you know there's nothing better than the confirmation of like wow i was right i was right this really did happen so you know to watch him see his history to see him know that he wasn't crazy that there wasn't a figment of his imagination because that's the thing that if i didn't believe these two gentlemen that stevie wonder and sly and all these people like got together like Imagine him telling people like, I went to a concert once and I saw all these people and there's no, there's no documenting of it at all. So you tend to think that it didn't happen or it was just your imagination. And for us to give that back to him 
that's when we knew instantly, okay, we, we have to find other people on this level. And so that's when the door started opening. Cause in the beginning, I was just going to have it just be a, a performance and nothing else. I got to ask you, did you start doing that before or after the last dance? Um, we started, I'll say we started the first round. So this would have been before, um, I think around November of 2019 is when we started the rounds of interviews. Actually, um, my North Star here, I forgot about the last dance. My North Star here was actually uh, uh, Amazing Grace. Mm. Um, and the way that Sidney Pollack um, sort of framed it where like, you're in the room with them watching. Um, you know, that, that shows you the power of Aretha Franklin's voice where even without context, um, you're just with her the whole time. You're in that church watching without knowing the stories. It wasn't until after that movie in which, you know, I got to talk to Chuck Rainey and Bernard Purdy. And then they just came with story after story of about like, you know, the Rolling Stones taking the parking spots away from James Cleveland and him getting angry over that, and tripping over the cords and when uh, Clara Ward walked in and how that jolted Aretha Franklin, like, you know, was that a flex? Like, why, why does she choose that moment to walk in? Like while she's singing, like all these stories behind it. And then I realized like, Oh, I too want to know what was happening in context, but do it in a way so that you never leave the festival. And so that's, that was the challenge to, to give you guys a director's commentary and context without really leaving that festival. It's really, it's really, really effective. It's smart. Um, Thank you. I, I wanted to obviously like seeing Stevie and seeing Sly and, and, and I, iconic artists like that is really exciting in the film, but it seems like you were relishing getting to tell almost like a mini story about an act like the fifth dimension, which mm-hmm. is a, you know, a band that maybe a lot of people know the songs, but maybe if you're someone who's don't my age, story. you don't know the story at all. And yeah. uh, I thought, I mean, I, I, that was one fought, of my favorite parts. Thank you. You, you validated me because Lord, <laughs> I fought to keep that wild story. <laughs> They're like, Oh no, the, the wild story doesn't serve the, the concert of mirror. I was like, yo, you got to understand. This was the, this was the most popular song of 1969 on both charts. And they won a Grammy before they knew what a Grammy was. And <laughs> This almost didn't, this a lost wallet is what caused this to happen. Hell yeah, I'm going to tell this story. Um, but, you know, on, in the case of, of Merlin McCoo and Billy Davis Jr., so I grew up with them kind of in their second phase when they had left the fifth dimension. And, you know, when I was growing up, it was all about variety shows. Now we have like competition shows and we have um, reality shows. But, you know, when I was a kid, everyone had. You know, it's like Donnie Marie had a show and the Jacksons had a show and then Gladys Knight and the Pips had a show and Flip Wilson, Sonny and Cher, you know, Merlin McCoo and Billy Davis Jr. also had their variety show as well that I watched religiously. And so I noticed that with the performance of. Of Billy uh, of the Fifth Dimension in Harlem was way different than the performances that I've seen them do um, when they were in the fifth dimension, like on variety shows, like the Ed Sullivan show or the tonight show. 
where, you know, they're more polished and more sophisticated. And here I was like, wow, I'm not, I wasn't used to seeing them be that loose. And so I just, you know, having to ask, you know, Billy, like, I never knew that you had a, a raspy gospel preacher voice into you. Like he was doing a lot of sack to me, like a lot of that stuff. And um, suddenly I realized what I was witnessing because my band had to go through the same thing, which is often like, you know, um, black groups often have to code switch. Um, I mean, black people in general have to code switch when they're in the professional atmosphere, no matter where they are at work. I only recognized it because it's like, okay, some nights the roots are opening for, for Soundgarden or System of a Down, and then other nights the roots are opening for Raekwon and Ghost or A Tribe Called Quest. And so uh, you have to adjust your show accordingly. And so recognizing that um, and realizing that I was seeing a very rare performance of the fifth dimension be just very relaxed and playful on stage, like a little too playful. Um, you know, Merlin just let the floodgates out. It was just like, yeah, like we, this is the type of show we always wanted to do. But, you know, when you're in a position where you constantly have the, the stress of being under code switching and, and always being on your best behavior, like it, it gets stressful sometimes, you know, cause it, it's, it's a means of survival. The same with Sly and the Family Stone. What, what makes that performance so revolutionary that you're witnessing is, for me, the most interesting camera angle was camera four, which is on the audience. Because you, the only way I can describe it, like when I describe it to um, my girlfriend's kids who were like in their 20s, you know, I'm, I'm explaining to them because, you know, they're raised by my age, my, my era hip-hop parents. So they get the language and I tell them like, this is the equivalent of if we were in a time machine watching a Wu-Tang show and today's Migos was like the opening act. And that's it's clearly a dividing line between generations. And when you see Sly and the Family Stone come out, like every adult in the room is shocked because it's like, wait a minute, they're not wearing tuxedos. They're not, you know, David Ruffin, it's the middle of August and David Ruffin has on a wool tuxedo and a winter coat yes i was gonna bring you, that up to you the the ruffled pink tuxedo you gotta be shirt. professional yeah, right and yeah. it's, it's sort of like you have to be professional before you're even comfortable i was like who would wear that in august and it's just like it your comfort doesn't matter it's like what what you have to do when you're in front of company you have to dress up and so for sly and the family stone to just walk out on stage in their everyday gear looking like aliens like it it took them four songs to win over everybody that I perceived to be over the age of 25. Like kids are losing their mind, like slide a family stone. So I was like, Oh, this is, this would be like, if my nephews were like, Oh my God, Migos is here. And I'm like, Oh yeah, they're, they're cool. They jump around on stage a lot. And, you know, but it, it was amazing to watch them totally convert that audience from half, from like half life to full fledged, fans in in 45 minutes it was amazing to watch that did you look at any other films before you started doing this you mentioned amazing grace was there anything else that you thought i like how this story is told as opposed to just here's how the footage is positioned you know in general um as with a lot of things in my life like i I didn't know that i was preparing for this even before this happened 
Um, so that said, uh, I will say that, um, you know, way before 2006, I, I was, I was, I was YouTube. I was the guy that had to carry these two big ass, like Kipling bags of VHS tapes and DVDs. Cause you never know when D'Angelo is going to want to watch some obscure, you know, performance by Chicago in Denver, or if I got to run blah, blah, blah's manager and Al Green performance to like, I was that guy. People call me up. Yo, can we borrow your, uh, your temptations live in Japan, uh, CD. So, so we can see, you know, how they da, 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 and structure their stage show. Like I was that guy from between 97 and really 2005. Like, I was the only person I knew that owned that Prince Michael Jackson, James Brown moment. And now the whole world knows it. But for a while, I was like the little boy that cried wolf. Like, really? You got Prince Michael Jackson, James Brown, and Prince falls off his... Yeah, right. Whatever. (laughs) No, for real. I did it. Like, I was that person. So, you know, I will say that all that time on the tour bus, my jobs and living on that tour bus with the roots from like 93 to... uh, 2009, like my job was always the night before any run, I'd go buy $1,000 worth of DVDs, whatever. Like I'm the entertainment uh, curator of both route store buses. So, you know, this went way beyond like getting Star Wars and, you know, any trilogies or whatever. Like I would have to go to like, you know, art house, art store, I'm sorry, art house, movie theaters and whatnot to, get criterion collections and get so there's literally nothing that we've not watched 42 times over either director's commentary or whatever and so like i took it all in but i i won't say that i specifically said like okay let me watch the last waltz or you know this particular documentary i just i took in everything i heard that you're directing a sly stone documentary that's your next yes, film i am uh, I, got, I got i gotta ask you about it quickly yeah. Um, this is one of the most mysterious and genius people who has ever lived and mm-hmm. has been living in a, a kind of obscurity for a long time. And I think there's ne- we're now at the stage where a lot of young folks just don't know who he is or what that band did and exactly. all of that stuff. Mm-hmm. So I, how do you, where, how do you start? How do you to even tell tackle that story? This? Yeah. How do you do it? <laughs> we, we, we had our first brainstorm um, this past week. So this is what I do know. Well, yeah, at first, if it's like, what does the world know about him? You know, the world knows right now he's probably just operating on what older figures like myself tell you. Slash Home was a genius. And then anyone younger than me or someone not knowing better is just going to trust that, okay, Amir knows what he's talking about. So I'll take his word for it. Um, and then there's people that know the songs. And then, there, you know, there's people that don't even know that they know the songs, you know, it's like, I know you love the Humpty dance by digital underground, but without Sly Stone, that song doesn't sound the same. You know, I know you love this particular sound, you know, these drums were taken from that or, you know, it, it, and so there's so many ways to attack it. What I think is what I was, what I, what I was obsessed about when making this film is that, you know, this performance in Summer of Soul is Sly having a dress rehearsal 
for the moment that turns him to a, a household word, which is Woodstock. Woodstock happens two weeks later for Sly. So he's doing this as a dress rehearsal. And, you know, from what I know is the world's in the palm of his hands. And all he has to do is just, you know, you have to dunk the ball. All you have to do is just a layup. Just put the ball in. And what winds up happening, you know, sort of remains to be seen. Because, you know, for all of our worship of there's a riot going on, I have a very different relationship with that record. That's a very painful album for me to listen to. Like listening to There's a Riot Going On, if I had to put it in today's context, it's almost like the anxiety you feel watching Adam Sandler and Uncut Gems. It's, you know, Uncut Gems is a gripping film. It's an excellent film, but it stresses you the fuck out. And there's a riot going on. Yes, it invented funk. It defined funk. It defines the way that we're going to play music for the next 100 years uh, if you're talking about funk music. However, I can't ignore the fact that this is one of the slowest deaths that were, it's like a a car accident that you're slowly riding by and and taking photos of. And it's just, for me, what I want to do, what one, I want to know what brought him to that place because this still lends into the Merlin McCoo situation where I know Sly um, as a disc jockey before the record deal, like he was very, he was very uh, instrumental in planting the seeds of ideas that a lot of countercultural Bay area, hate street hippies were getting into like that period between 62 and 66 that he's just a radio DJ. He's already programming the kind of, rebellion that once they're teenagers, they, they're, you know, they're hippies and whatnot. So he's actually part of that counterculture movement too. And then on the other hand, he's has a foot in Oakland with the black Panthers and the pressure to never forget and stay black. And so I know that level of code switching has to be uh, exhausting. And so I want to tell the story of a human being because we often tend to, when it's, when it's geniuses, be it a monster or a genius, like we have music figures that are absolute monsters and we have music figures that are absolute geniuses. Um, but it's really hard to just get to the center of the heart of the situation and humanize them. So uh, I'm going to try to really take away the tragic music figure that we've all seen, be it, you know, be it Kurt Cobain, be it uh, Charlie Parker, be it Hendrix or whatever. Like he was a genius at his talent, but his life was tragic. Like there's something, there's something in between there that hasn't been observed yet. And that's where I, that's what I want to kind of peek and peek under the hood and see. That's So I have that's, my work cut out for me. That sounds very exciting. I wish you luck. Um, thank you. Thank you. Amir, you're a you're a filmmaker now. We end every episode of this show by asking filmmakers what's the last great thing they've seen. I know you watch a lot of stuff. There's this documentary that I got hip to um, about mushrooms. Okay. Um, 
Hang on. It is I, called. I guarantee you you're the first person to recommend this one. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's called Fantastic uh, Fungi. Okay. And it's it's a film. Uh, this director, uh, his name is uh, Louis. Wait, I'm trying to pronounce his last. Louis Schwar- Schwarzburg. And um, it literally explains why, um, how the earth um, sort of operates. You know, oftentimes when you see those, uh, those films where they'll, they'll put a you know, camera on a particular plot of land and you get to watch time elapse. Yes. Like they'll put it there for a week and you get to see it. Um, yeah. I didn't realize the, the roles that mushrooms play um, in our everyday life. And in like how how it operates uh, as medicine, how it operates for the earth, um, yeah. This is this is literally, I, I literally became the the probably the the human that I used to make fun of. Uh, I turned into that person last year. So, you know, quarantining on a farm alone, silence, not much TV to watch. Uh, at least not the level of television that I was used to watching before my girlfriend moved in. Um, So we watched just a lot of really cool documentaries and this fantastic fungi um, documentary is a sight to behold. Like I highly recommend it. I'm I'm, going to check it out. Congratulations on, uh, on summer of soul, man. I really appreciate the time today. Thank you, man. I appreciate it. Thanks to Questlove and thanks to Amanda. And of course, thanks to Kai McMullen, today's producer, and Bobby Wagner for his work on this episode. Later this week on The Big Picture, we're talking about the return of the MCU with an emphasis on the sea. Black Widow is almost here and we will review it. We'll see you then.